0: Welcome to the RIA podcast. This is your host, Seth Green. Today, I've got the good fortune to be interviewing David Mara, Managing Director for Markin Asset Management. David leads portfolio management and research for the firm. He's been an invited speaker on quantitative asset management at numerous family offices, hedge funds, conferences, and organizations, including NAPFA, ALTSLA, and the Financial Planning Association. David, thanks so much for joining Ed.
1: us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Thanks for inviting me.
0: Um, our pleasure. Let's go back in time just a little bit. How did you get started in the business in the first place? I know, I believe you got your MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, out of business school, uh, I did some management consulting for one of the one of the large firms. But that lasted just a couple of years for me because what happened during that time, this was uh, the late 1990s. Um, The Internet happened (laughs) and uh, I started my first artificial intelligence firm back in 1999 in the Internet search engine space. So we were building, you know, what was then, you know, state of the art AI algorithms, which have, you know, improved dramatically since then to deploy it to Internet search. And really most of the artificial intelligence algorithms that we look at today, including the chat GPT style, um, large language models are really based on uh, the type of work that I was doing back there in the late 1990s. So I started this firm at about 75 people working for me, building technology. Um, and I got the technology bug. Uh, I had a MBA in finance from Chicago, of course. And uh, after that, after that venture, I got thinking about how we could apply large amounts of data, this new generation of algorithms, and to the problem of investing, which is what my you know, graduate school training had been in. So um, I started thinking about it actually for a long period of time, for about six years, uh, kind of interacting with academics around the world who were writing interesting papers and related topics, and finally converged on the idea that it was possible to sort of build algorithms. We take this for granted now, but go back to kind of 2008, 2009 kind of timeframe. People didn't even think, that algorithms could run investment portfolios. Um, so in 2010, uh, I founded a uh, artificial intelligence machine learning based investment research firm to build um, quantitative trading strategies for institutional investors. And then we built some uh, strategies of our own during that process. And then um, three years ago now, I partnered with my partner, Matt Kinzer and we formed Mark and Asset Management to bring those strategies, uh, those systematic investment strategies to uh, to RIAs through market asset management.
0: Awesome, and I'm sure That's, the longer version of that story could probably be in a book somewhere.
1: Yeah, you know, at some point when I retire and uh, between golf links or something like that, I'll try to put put something down there. But I certainly enjoy telling it, particularly to you know younger younger people in the business, as a way to really kind of uh, give them confidence that you can you can be on the frontier. Uh, it doesn't always have to be the bleeding edge. It can be the leading edge, and you can do something that brings, you know, demonstrable uh, improvement over what came before it.
0: Uh, absolutely. So let's dive in. I mean, now AI is a part of the conversation every day, thanks to the widespread popularity of chat, GPT, and other things like that. You were... You know, ahead of the curve. What did your first iteration of algorithms do? Just to go back in time and talk a little bit about where you've come from to what we're doing now. Yeah, sure.
1: So, probably uh, the most honest answer is they they didn't do very much, very well. <laughs> uh, you know, this is science. This is research and development, and it's it's about. Uh, I think what it boils down to and what took me a long time to learn, but what it boils down to, and you and you see people making these same mistakes over and over s- still in the business is it comes down to never over trusting the algorithm, right. And forgetting about the finance, right. You know, at the end of the day, the things that I learned at Chicago, um, you know, from Nobel laureates and, and, and you know, p- very esteemed people was that the principles of Adam Smith, and Milton Friedman, and Gene Fama, and Richard Thaler, et cetera, are just as important as having uh, you know, fancy machine learning type of algorithms, right? And the question before somebody like me as a systematic uh, investor, uh, portfolio manager, is how can we marry the best of both worlds and never try to strike the right balance? Because things like um, the fact that you know equities are priced based on their expected future cash flows—that's never going to change, right? That's how they're priced. And there's a lot of things that we can learn from finance theory and, and empirical finance that we don't want to forget. Um, but we can make it fart smarter and faster with these algorithms. So I would say it was a, it was a really long journey. A lot doesn't work at the beginning. Um, which is, uh, you know, it's a benefit of having done it for 25 years or something like that, is that uh, you really, you build upon your mistakes like you do in any scientific domain.
0: Absolutely. So what do the, what do those algorithms do now?
1: So uh, they do that, that merging that I talked about, right? Um, That we take fundamental principles of investing, which have been around for a long time. Think about Markowitz. Uh, portfolios, uh mean variance portfolios, for example. Uh that's how you put portfolios together to to get the optimal mix of you know per unit, uh the highest per unit return relative to the amount of risk you're taking, right? That's what Markowitz is all about. But what they do today, I guess in a summary would be to say that what we're trying to do is take an objective function, right? The objective function is the utility of the investor. The utility of the investor is think of a retiree. A retiree has a 30-year window over which they're going to draw down a portfolio, and uh, you know t- may not be to zero. They may want to leave something for a future generation, but they're going to draw it down to some number. And over that period of time, they want to have the maximum amount of income that they can have available to them, right? And the question is, that's a complex mathematical question, which we can kind of sort through. Uh, and we can then say, OK, well, that's the function of that retiree over 30 years. Now, rather than just say, let's invest in equities and bonds in some combination, let's do something better. Let's actually say that the utility of that 30-year retiree has a function. Let's code that function. Let's actually then invest to optimize the income out of that utility relative to that utility function. So we can take a much more proactive approach to investing where we're not just investing in rules of thumb like 60-40 or what have you, but rather we're we're actually taking the utility of, of a particular type of drawdown function or a particular risk preference, of a, a particular need for a certain amount of income and we can get the assets to start to work toward that as an outcome. This is like outcome based investing sometimes it's referred to different things. But the point is we can take we can take a much more proactive approach to trying to to achieve an outcome that somebody wants. The same goes for a retiree as for somebody who's younger and earlier in their career and can afford to take on more risk and has a has a longer window and that's where I think things for us have really evolved toward is being able to Um, more precisely target for the investor, you know, their preferences, to capture their preferences so that they're not facing uh, larger drawdowns than they expect to face, for example, last year, for example. And basically for RIAs, they can get a better customer experience, right? Their customer experience is, are their clients satisfied? You know, in in a year like last year, a lot of RIAs who you know on the downside may not have been performing very well and we're having large drawdowns they're going to get a lot of phone calls they're going to get clients who are upset that hey I didn't sign up for this level of risk that I'm that I'm in whereas with what we're doing being able to use 100 years of data and analyze things more more completely and more perfectly we can never see the future well but we can control risk better we can understand where our risk exposures are and as a result, you know our portfolio is going to have much less exposure to downside risk and produce that better income profile. You know that I kind of alluded to before. So that's kind of, I mean, that's you know, probably probably a lot of questions you could ask about, and your your listeners could ask about it. But that's the gist of how we're trying to use better methods to give a better client experience for the RA client.
0: That makes a lot of sense. How is, how has that been working? I mean, you've been doing it for a while. How's it working?
1: I think it works. You know, it's been working pretty well. Obviously, we have a very we have a growing business. I think um, last year, year on year, I think we grew assets uh, under management 100%. And uh, you know, our clients what we hear from our clients, uh, our clients meaning RIAs uh, and their clients is uh, I mean they were they were really happy with what we've delivered for them over the last few years. So I think it's I think it's going well. I mean, we never sit back on our laurel Seth, you know and and sort of say hey we got this you know we're constantly innovating um bringing in new and exciting data sets underneath the hood um you know expanding the depth of what our algorithms can do exploring what you know the new generation of chat gpt style language oriented AI can potentially do. So there's always, you know, because again, this is the scientific exercise. It's a research and development exercise. It's a constant innovation exercise. But I mean, in terms of the feedback we've gotten and the growth we've seen in our assets under management, you know, things seem to be working pretty well.
0: And obviously the assets under management speaks volumes. How is it doing on, let's say, like a risk, risk adjusted return type of basis?
1: So, right, right. So an alpha kind of measurement yes. or some other risk-adjusted risk, risk adjusted returns I've been measuring like alpha. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that is, you know, I'm glad you asked that because that's, you know, what I was alluding to before. That's the absolute core of what we're saying to try to get, I, I described it before as the same target return for less per unit amount of risk. So that's a higher risk-adjusted return, right? so exactly i mean um that's what we're we're striving for again we've we've delivered excess alpha relative to benchmarks um over the past couple of years and that's you know um you know that's what drives those those assets under management but that but more to the essence of your question is i think that you know when somebody sets a risk preference you know one way to think about that and for your r i a listeners to think about that is you know what's the 30 40 60 year um, you know, pick your favorite horizon kind of return to some level of volatility, just to keep risk simple here. And then, you know, look for a manager who's constantly asking the question, can I get that target return, but with taking a little bit less risk, right? And that's what ultimately all our algorithms uh, boil down to. You know, there was a, a Nobel laureate called Daniel Kahneman um, he had a co-author called Tversky, but Daniel Kahneman uh, won his Nobel Prize for something called Prospect Theory. Prospect Theory is a simple empirical observation, which just says that an investor faces more pain on the downside than they do your, your euphoria on the upside, right? So if they if they lose 20% of their money, they feel more pain than if they than the euphoria they would feel if they gained 20% on their money, right? So this asymmetry in how people Feel about losses means that um, you want to you want to kind of try to minimize large losses, right? We don't actually at market asset management, we don't minimize you know daily fluctuations. That's not where we're at, but we 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 definitely focus and take on as, a, as an objective to minimize large drawdowns. And when you do that, you will, and again, if you can deliver against that target return over the long run, what you'll do is you'll drive up that alpha measure or that risk-adjusted measure that you're talking about. And that's, you've sort of captured by asking this question, you know, the essence of market and asset management, which is to drive that, drive those large Um, downside risks down um, so that the investor doesn't have to take such large risks to get that target return over the long run.
0: That makes a lot of sense. How have your both retail and RIA clients responded?
1: So retail and RIA clients. So I think for some People, this is a very natural story, right? It comes out of anything they would have studied um, in their finance background, you know, any kind of Markowitz type of studying, portfolio optimization type of studies. Um, even people who've dived into risk preferences and how to translate risk preferences into portfolios, it comes very naturally. I think for When I talk to the planning community. So when I talk to the RIA community, this becomes a very natural discussion. I think when I talk to the planning community, you probably have some planners among your audience. The planning community, I think, comes from a different uh, kind of educational background and they're more used to thinking about passive benchmarks, right? Just everything is passive. Everything needs to be passive. I think for them, uh, it requires uh, a little bit more. I mean, I'll call it education or discussion, to really kind of go through what Markowitz is really saying and what that implies for time varying, you know, t- time varying risks that we see and this kind of thing. So, um, so different audiences, different receptivity. I think the RIA audience is very natural for us, and I think the planning community is increasingly getting there. Um, but they do come from a different background and it it does take a little bit more effort, I would say.
0: For sure. Your passion is obvious. What do you like best about what you're doing?
1: You know, um, I think there's probably two things, maybe three things that I enjoy. One is I enjoy the quant, right? You know, it's like, you know, math, sciences, these were things that, you know, eight years old, go back, you know, pick your age. You know, I was always into those kinds of things. Uh, logical problems that we can break down, we can use data, we can use um, other bright minds, theories, stand on the shoulders of giants, build systems, all this kind of stuff. I enjoy that. So I enjoy being able to do that. In fact, I, you know, Seth, I still code, right? You know, I, I started coding, you know, back uh, when I was in, I don't know when the, you know, basically when computers, like,
0: home I PCs. I, do- and you're can- talking about... came out. Yeah, Dawson Apple Basic.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right, all this kind of stuff, right, exactly. And uh, I can remember writing a basic program, Just a slide aside here, but I can remember writing a basic program when I was in middle school or high school that computed the value of pi out infinite, infinitely. Right? I did another one for um, to solve my multiple equations math homework for me. You know, right? So these are the kinds of things I did as a kid. So so I enjoy just being able to do what I enjoy. That's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is I absolutely enjoy not just being locked to the coding and the computers and that kind of thing, but being able to interact with the RIAs, right? Really in particular, RIAs and planners. I mean, those are our clients that we talk to most frequently. And um, I mean, these these are smart people. They're small business people for the most part, like ourselves. And they're trying to build a business. They're trying to do it as smart as they can, as intelligently as they can. They're looking for the best partners they can absolutely find. And we're always honored when we become one of those partners to help them, you know, better manage their portfolios and bring them portfolios that can deliver these better uh, better returns and risk management and all this kind of stuff. And just being able to interact with smart, intelligent people who know what they're doing and are in it to also grow their businesses um we share kind of like minds along those dimensions and that's just a lot of fun and it it brings a nice balance between left brain and and right brain you know as opposed to just being involved in one of these activities and you'd have to do just use one half of your brain all day long
0: that makes a lot of sense well we know your time is incredibly valuable we greatly appreciate you spending some of it with us for our viewers or listeners who want to learn more, where is the best place for us to send them to learn more about you and Markin?
1: Yeah, so you can Google us at Markin Asset Management. Um, and then, of course, our website is uh, MarkinFunds.com. And I'll spell that for everybody. dot com. And our landing page for the RIA podcast is MarkinFunds.com forward slash dot com.
0: All right. We greatly appreciate your time. This has been Seth Green with David Mara. David, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you so much, Seth. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, for watching or listening. We will talk to you or see you next time. 49 faces look to him in triumph. Over the last 12 months, they had each taken turns and promoted his business for a week at a time, driving over $987,342 in revenue. What if you had a network of 50 centers of influence who promoted your business every week for a year? Grab your copy of the number one Amazon best-selling book, The Ultimate Guide to Growing Your Business with a Podcast, at 33% off the Amazon price by going to ultimatepodcastbook.com. Again, that website for 33% off the Amazon price is ultimatepodcastbook.com.